Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Handle Publishing, home to the Neil Baggio thriller series, including the novels Veritas, Ave Maria, and the most recent one, Colloquium, which released at the beginning of August. More installments of the series are on the way, and Blue Handle has just announced a Neil Baggio graphic novel contest. They're taking submissions through November 1st, and will announce a winner by the end of the year. Learn more about that at neilbaggio.com. Blue Handle Publishing is also working with local best-selling author Andrew Brandt to publish Brandt's thriller, The Unwinding Cable Car, on November 17th. You can find more details at bluehandlepublishing.com. Today's guest is Kara Gilbert. Kara has worked for Randall County Juvenile Probation at the Youth Center of the High Plains since 2011. She's been a juvenile supervision officer and just completed a criminal justice degree. But in addition to her work with young people, she's the founder of Solidarity Isn't Silent, an Amarillo organization that originated in the outrage following the murder of George Floyd. Her organization, which is brand new, exists to help combat systematic racism and stand up to the injustice faced by the black community. And three months after starting, it's still evolving. Kara has a really unique and humble perspective. I think you'll enjoy this one. Here's Kara Gilbert. Kara Gilbert, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Well, I, I appreciate it. I know uh, that you have a busy schedule, so thanks for giving me uh, some time to talk. We are out on my back porch. It's a relatively cool morning so far. Yes, let's uh, get out here. A little, bit of, uh, a little bit of noise, but we'll see how that works. So I'd, I'd like to start the way that I start with every guest and ask you the most basic question, which is how did you end up here in Amarillo? What brought you to this area you know, to start? Okay, well, um, I was born here, but I was raised in Canyon, so I don't know if you... It's pretty much Emerald. Pretty much we, the same We consider thing. it all the same. <laughs> okay, well, I was born and raised here, and I left for a little bit after college, or after high school, and went to college in Plainview, but again, pretty close, but um, I moved back here. This is where my family is. This is where my siblings are, and so I wanted to be around my family. Did you go to Canyon High School? I did. I graduated from Canyon High School in 2007. And you were an athlete, right? I was, yes. I played basketball for the Lady Eagles. And um, if, if I understand it right, you also played for Wayland, right? I did. I went and played two years at Wayland okay. after high school. Tell me about that experience, um, you know, playing for Canyon, which has such a storied women's basketball program. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I imagine your team was in a long line of successful teams. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about what that was like. Playing for Canyon was an amazing experience. Joe Lombard was literally a huge factor in my life. He helped me become a better person, a better player. And, you know, he, Coach Lombard very rarely yelled, which is, which was a very big change when I went to college. He, was just inspiring to me. Um, he lived right down the street from me. Okay. So uh, he always passed by my house, and I would be shooting basketball outside. And he would the a gym back then was right across the street from my house, and so he would like let me into the gym, and we had a very good relationship. And you know he he just sought out to help me a lot personally, and just being a mentor. And then when I went to college, it was definitely adjust an adjustment because, you know, we I won state with Canyon my senior year. And um, so I went from a, a legendary program to one with a new coach. He was a new coach that year for Wayland. So it was definitely adjustment. Um, he he was great as well, but he definitely was a different type of coach than um, Coach Lombard and uh, it was just it was an adjustment. But um, I had a great experience at Wayland. But it was definitely different. <laughs> was was there ever a point? I, I've talked to a number of successful, you know, high school athletes, and there's always that discussion about, you know, what am I? Is this going to be something that lasts beyond high school? Mm -hmm. You know, or if you go to college and there's college interest, is this going to be something that lasts beyond college? You mm -hmm. know, whether you get into if you're good enough to play pros, or if you, you know. Uh, want to get into the administrative side or something like that. Like, did you, was basketball a big enough part of your life that you thought there might be something for you as an adult, you know, as, as you move past that stage? 
Um, not past college. Um, in high school, it was definitely something that I wanted to go. I knew that I wanted to go to college to do because I, I quit all other sports my sophomore year. I played volleyball and ran track. And I quit all of those and did straight basketball my junior and senior year because I knew that that's what I wanted to do in college. Did you um, have college interest in you already at that point? When and you not, were... not my junior year. Okay, my senior year was senior. when it was pretty active as far as talking to different colleges and visiting different colleges. But yeah, I, I knew past college, I didn't think it was anything I wanted to do. If anything, possibly coach. Okay. But um, after my two years at Wayland, I was pretty much pretty much done with playing. I, uh, I tore my ACL. Okay. I, I blew it out. I tore my ACL, my MCL, both my meniscus. And I just, it was never quite the same after that. So when you left Canyon to go to college, were you one of those kids who, you know, graduates, grows up in a small town, graduates and thinks, all right, I'm out of here. Like, like I'm going to make my way in the world outside this place where I grew up. Or did you have it in your mind that you might end up back in this area? I pretty much knew I was going to end up coming back to Amarillo. I've never really been the type that wanted to get out. I'm a very family-oriented person, and I I want to be around my family. I, I didn't want to move far away. They're my support system. Mm-hmm. They're a lot of the times my only support system, so I wasn't going to leave them. <laughs> did you like growing up in Canyon? I did. Um I realize now how is definitely a different place. It's not very culturally diverse. And so I didn't realize a lot of things growing up, but that I realize now, but growing up, yes, I loved it. I had, you know, um, I had great people around me, uh, very, I don't remember very much trouble going mm-hmm. on around me. I hung out with a, a good group of people. We were, a we were kids who just, we didn't get into trouble. We were very much a church-based youth group that all hung out together outside of church as well. So I loved Canyon. You know, after you graduated from college and I guess came back to this area, did did you have a plan? Did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Or was it sort of a stumble (laughs) through it and and figure that out kind of thing? Absolutely not. I actually, I didn't graduate from Wayland. Okay. Yeah. I I played two years of basketball there and I moved back and uh, I started going to Amarillo College. I went there. My my life is a crazy story, but I went to- That makes for a good podcast, so share it. (laughs) I went to Amarillo College just for a couple semesters and I was just kind of done. I just wanted to work at that point. And I worked in the mall. I was meeting a lot of people, becoming somewhat of a social butterfly, if you will. And um, then I had my first son uh, when I was 21. I had my first child. And um, it wasn't until then I feel like I finally got my life together. Like the responsibility of parenting kind of gave you some focus. Exactly. And so I had my son, and I started back to college probably when he was two he was two, and then I went to Amarillo College, and I got my associate's degree, and I actually walked the stage at AC when I was eight months pregnant with my second. All right. And, uh, and I, then I just graduated from WT in August of 2019. Okay. And so tell me about uh, what you do now as a career. I work for Randall County Juvenile Probation, which is the youth center of the High Plains. I've worked there since 2011. Um, I started there as a juvenile supervision officer, which is the staff that work with the kids that are detained in the back. Um, I was just a direct line staff. We have a program that we run out there and we're just, we're responsible for helping them through that program and just kind of helping them grow while they're in there. Cause some kids are in there for, um, you know, they can be in there for up to just 24 hours and Mm -hmm. some kids are actually placed there and can be there for up to two years. Um, so I just worked with a variety of kids. I did, uh, several different positions. I was what they call a floater. And so I worked, you know, main control, uh, did intakes with the kids. I worked in the detention uh, facility, part of the facility, which is are the kids that are kind of waiting to see where they go. Mm -hmm. And the residential part of the facility are the kids that are actually placed there. And so I I worked both programs. And so I did that for five years. And when I came back from maternity leave, there was a position open, which is kind of a bookkeeping accounting position and also an HR position. And that became open while I was on maternity leave. And of course, being being a mom of a newborn, an eight to five sounded fantastic uh, because it was shift work in the back. 
and within the same facility, which I loved with the people that I love. Um, so I ended up getting that position. So when I came back from maternity leave, that's the position I've been working in for the past four years. I want to talk about that environment because I suspect it's the kind of thing, if, if people think about, let's say, an adult prison or jail, we've seen a lot of TV shows, movies, whatever. Mm-hmm. We, we feel like we kind of know what's going on there. I bet we don't. <laughs> but we have a picture of it. Um, give me that picture of, of a juvenile detention center. Is it... Is it the same? You know, it's just younger people? Absolutely not. Okay. (laughs) Yes, it's a lot different. Um, You know, even I had the a very different idea of what it was going to be before I went and toured it. I kind of had the, you know, double flooring with uh, sliding jail cells and bars. That's the image I had in my head before I started. And then I went on my tour, and it was a complete shock to what I had the idea that probably most of most people have. Um, it doesn't look like Rikers Island or Alcatraz not. or any of the, those places we've it's seen. It's actually very homey, and I know that sounds weird, but it's um, each kid, you know, they have ind- their own individual rooms, their own individual toilets. There's no showering together. It's individual showers as well. Um, and it's a very strict program at the youth center, you know, um, each day is accounted for, you know, your free time, your reading, your groups, we have groups and within those groups, you're talking to those kids and you're teaching them things. And the program that we teach out there is RBT, which is rational behavior training. Okay. Um, so while the kids are there, we're trying to instill as much information in them that we can to possibly help them when they get out, get out of the facility. Um, you know, we teach social skills because some kids come in there and they don't, they don't know or haven't been taught that you need to properly introduce yourself when you see, when you're around somebody that you don't know. And, um, so that's part of it, teaching them to say, Hey, my name is so-and-so it's nice to meet you. Basic social skills. And we have several different skills. We have Each kid has some skill cards that they are required to learn while they're in there. And, of course, you know, some kids are there for 24 hours. Some kids are there for years. So some kids can memorize them in that time frame. Some can't. Um, but in those different groups, you're just, you're just teaching them just basic skills that they can use when they get out. With RBT is just teaching them how to think. Not a, not a lot of us think about what we're thinking. Yeah. You know, why we think the, th- the way that we do. And, you know, we teach them that, you know, the way you think leads to the way that, or the way that you think leads to a, how you feel and um, which in turn turns to how you act. Mm-hmm. And so we just kind of get them thinking that way. And we do some rational um, self-analysis on a piece of paper, RSAs. Um, if they do something, if they act irrationally or they're talking irrationally, they can fill out this RSA to kind of think, um, to process that and see what, how they can take this irrational thought and this irrational thinking to a rational place. So (laughs) it's definitely not like you think about it. Um, they actually go to school there and a lot of people don't know that, um, CISD actually has a a program within that facility. So while the kids are there um, from eight to four ish, they're going to school the entire day. You know, they have their lunch break, but they're going to school the entire day. So they're getting their education while they're there. It's not just, you know, just sitting and waiting. Right. Right. Sleeping on a cot in their cell or something. Exactly. Like that. Definitely not the case. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about, I mean, I, I, I feel like this is a topic that a lot of people just don't know anything about. Um, so, so tell me a little bit about what circumstances might result in a kid finding themselves, you know, having to go to the detention center, whether it's a 24 hour stint, whether it's something longer. I mean, it, what beyond, you know, if, if a kid gets punished at school, they might get in school suspension or something like that. It's something else that, that results in, in detention. Okay. Um, well, that can definitely be like drug charges. Is that what kind of, kind mm-hmm. of, okay. Um, drug charges, a lot of assault on a public servant or evading arrest. And unfortunately there's going to be a lot of people don't recognize how bad sexual cases are okay. in children. You know, um, there's been, you know, it happens to them and they don't know any better. And it ha- they end up doing it to somebody else. Okay. And so that's honestly a big one. We actually have a program specifically for kids that have committed sexual offenses. Um, so, I mean, there's a, just a variety of different things that can place you in there. But 
those seem to be the most prominent. Is, is there a wide age range or do they tend to be older teenagers? Because I guess there gets to a point where there's potential they could be tried as an adult for some charges. Um, so give me like an age range of, of okay. who might be there. We start taking kids at age 10. All right. Um, and we stop taking kids at 17, um, 17 year olds. It just depends. Um, if it's a new charge, then they're going to be tried in as adult. Um, but if they're say they're on juvenile probation and they commit like a violation of their probation at 17, it's going to be there's, they'll be in the juvenile detention center, but at 17 and older, if it's a new offense, they'll, they'll be tried as an adult. All right, so you worked in or have worked in that environment for multiple years. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also a mom. Tell me, like, how you deal with that. You know, working with kids who are in trouble, who are dealing with stuff. You know, just from from an emotional standpoint, like, how do you deal with that? How do you compartmentalize? How do you handle, you know, some of some of the challenges of, of that kind of environment? Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> or maybe what is it? What does it teach you? I mean, how how does that inform, like, you know, some of the things that uh, are important to you, having been in, in places like that and seen that kind of behavior or the results of however kids have grown up, all of those things? Right. Well, it definitely, things aren't always what they seem. And honestly, that is exactly what I've learned being back there. Like, these kids are good kids. I mean, it it makes me want to tear up thinking about it because people get this stigma of these kids that are back there, and it's just not like that. Like these kids have good hearts, and they are they have goals and they have things in mind. They've just been through some things, you know. They haven't had a support system, and those of us that are fortunate fortunate enough to have that support system and to have people lead us and direct us in the right way, we don't realize how fortunate we really are because some of these kids are just winging it. You know, they, they have no sense of direction. They have nobody that have taught them right or wrong or just basics. And that's one big thing that I've learned being in that environment. Do your mom instincts kick in? Like, I, I know you're not, you're working more in an office setting mm-hmm. eight to five now than, than being, you know, directly with the kids. But like, is, is that something that you find yourself relying on that motherly instinct with some of these kids to, to help them get their lives turned around or get on the right path? Most definitely. Yes. Um, and I think a lot of us moms are able to kind of put things into perspective for the kids, especially when they're acting out. Um, all, all, of course, all the staff are trained in verbal de-escalation. So mm-hmm. when something's happening, we try to talk them through it. But most definitely when, when I was in that situation and I was the one that was having to do the verbal de-escalation, um, that's when my mom instincts would kick in, you know, being able to talk to them and put things into a different perspective. Hey, this is the choice. If you, if you make this choice, this is what could happen. If you make this choice, this is what could happen and kind of giving them, um, different outcomes and letting them choose, which is kind of, which is something that I've taken with my kids as well. Okay. How old are your own kids now? My oldest is nine and my youngest is four. Okay. I, I'd like to talk a little bit about Solidarity Isn't Silent. Okay. Just to hear, you know, for, for people that may have seen Facebook posts over the last few months, um, to, to get an idea of, of how the organization developed and sort of, you know, where it came from, um, because it has gone from like no visibility to a lot of visibility, right. you know, just over the course of the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that. It's, it's quite the funny story. <laughs> um, you know, after the, uh, well, let me start off first. I have been pretty vocal about racial injustice for about the past five years. Before then I wasn't, I was very blind to what was going on. And I will openly admit that, which is a lot of why solidarity isn't silent is, is I call it my baby. It's my baby. And because I know a lot of people just don't see it, which is exactly where I was probably six years ago. So tell me, let's start at the beginning then and tell me how that shift happened from being blind to being passionate about racial injustice or racial justice. Right. Well, I had a conversation. That's where, honestly, that's where it started. I worked with a man who I loved and respected, and he was wise. He was very wise. And uh, he pretty much called me out on some of the things that I was saying as far as I was a very much all lives matter person. 
And I didn't understand the Black Lives Matter statement. You know, to me, I was like, you know, well, of course, Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. So if I'm having to choose between the two, because at the time it was your all lives matter, your black lives matter. Let's include more lives. Right. right? And so... Was this after Ferguson was like... Yes. At the very beginning of that movement? Okay. And um, so I was like, well, if I have to choose one, of course, all lives matter, because that includes Black Lives Matter, you know? And um, he basically sat me down and was like, you don't get it. And I'm like, okay, tell me why. Like, explain this to me. And, you know, I look back now, and that is obviously, that's not his place. He didn't have, it is my responsibility to learn. Right. You know, it's not the black community's responsibility to teach me. But I am so thankful that he took that opportunity to, to, to sit me down and to explain things to me. And after that conversation, I was like, wow, I really didn't get it. You know, he opened my eyes to so many different things. You know, one thing he said to me was, you know, white lives have always mattered. It's never been an issue of white lives mattering. And um, that is something that has stuck with me this entire time. There's never been a need for white people to march or protest. Exactly. Because to get mm -hmm. the acceptance, you know, that, that they feel they deserve. And when he said that, I felt very convicted I was like, well, my God, my gosh, that's that's absolutely true. And so once my eyes were opened, it's like everything was open. I just started seeing everything. That was my shifting point was my conversation with him. So for the past five years, I've been vocal about it. But after the George Floyd murder, I was angry. I was very angry. It was a different type of angry than I've been in the past when this, these things have happened. And I, I knew that I needed to channel that into something positive because, or else that just wouldn't work well for me. Anger isn't good for anybody. Right. And so I wanted to channel that anger and that disappointment into something positive. And, you know, I made a, I made a couple of phone calls to a few of my, you know, closer people that I know are very active in the black community and I was like, okay, I'm here. What can we do? I'm ready. And uh, what, what somebody told me was, you know, if black people could have fixed this, it would have been fixed already. You know, this is, uh, this is a white people problem, and white people are going to have to fix it. Hmm. Like, and I was like, challenge accepted, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, I ended up making a Facebook post that day, and I was like, you know, who are tired of this? Who are people that aren't of color that are willing to take a step and do something? And um, several people responded. A lot of people responded. And so I kind of messaged people individually. But that, that very same night, I had a meeting with a few of my friends. And it was, three, it was four of us in that living room. And I knew that they had the same hearts and wanted the same things. And so we sat there and we just kind of talked about what we could do. And initially we were thinking like, how about a march? We can do a march. And that was kind of our beginning goal. And uh, I was actually texting with a group of people at the same time who were very interested as well in helping. And it was that night that we came out with Solidarity Isn't Silent. A girl, we, we knew we wanted silent silence, some type of silence in there. But when a girl said Solidarity Isn't Silent, I was like, that's it. You know, that's what we wanted. So that was actually going to be the name of the march that we were going to okay. have. And it just, we started the Facebook group for people to gather for the march. And honestly, it just became something so much bigger than that. And I'm so glad it did. We are, you know, our mind kind of shifted from marching to longevity. This can be something that can have longevity. And so we started talking about what can we do? How can we bring forms of education into here? um, How can we help just teach people about something that they might not know? Because I think that's a lot of the issues around here is that, it doesn't directly affect a whole lot of people. You know, if you're not of color, typically you're not directly affected. Um, in my case, I have, my children are biracial. Okay. Um, so it, it does affect me. It affects my kids. We've already dealt with racism in school, in, um, in restaurants. You know, I'm treated very differently when I'm by myself than when I'm with my kids. Hmm. 
And um, and they're not older kids. I no, mean, they're, they're, they're nine and four. S- small, so. right? Hmm. And um, so it it does directly affect me in that manner. But if you're not having to deal with these things or not seeing these things often, especially if you live in a white community and you just don't, you're not around a whole lot of black people, you're not going to see it. Right. You know, you have to, you have to be in that position in order to see it. And, you know, a lot of people don't think that it's around because they just don't, they're not around it. And it's hard to see something that you're not around. And unless you have that, a close enough relationship with a person of color who is willing to talk about some of these hard things. They're not just coming out and saying, oh, here's here's all the stuff that we go through. Exactly. Because they're trying to live in a predominantly white society exactly. and not, you know, cause trouble mm-hmm. or, or bring extra attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so those relationships are an important part of just knowing what people are going through. Very. That's a that's a, actually a big thing of what we are trying to do because we have a lot of people in the north the south side that are really wanting to help and be involved and they're openly admitting I have no ties to the north side. Right. Absolutely no ties, but I want to help. I want to be involved. I want to I want to be there, be visible, say I'm here to help. And so Solidarity Isn't Silent is, is wanting to be that bridge because within our, our group that is helping, we have people from the north side, we have people from the south side, and it's bringing those two together. You know, what can we do to be that bridge? And this weekend, I actually went to the to a Gotcha Girls Expo. They had a mother-daughter event, and somebody stopped me. And she she was saying, you know, y'all are doing something that's never been done before. Most time when when groups are starting, it's somebody in Amarillo has is already doing something a little different, somewhat similar, you know. And she said, you know, y'all are doing something that's different. And it seems like y'all are the bridge. And when she said that, I was like, that's exactly what we're trying to do is just trying to bring different communities together, bring different organizations together, because that's what we're just trying to be there. Right. And that's that's our biggest thing. We want to help um, with anything. You know, the food giveaway uh, that we've, we've done a couple of those, the community cleanup that we just did. Um, it's just about being there, being visible, being there and help, being down in the trenches and being able to do the work and not just talking. Because that's what I felt like I was doing for five years. Yeah, guys, this is terrible. This shouldn't be happening. You know, I, I could talk on Facebook all day, post facts and post statistics. But what am I doing? You know, what am I actually doing? And so that's and that's what we're trying to do. Be there, be visible, being able to mix these two communities and be the bridge between. One of the things that I've I've been impressed by is that a lot of times you have an event, and, and this has happened countless times with the Black Lives Matter movement, where something happens, there's a lot of passion about it, there's some marches, and then it kind of falls out of the public consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. which is why we have to keep going through this multiple times. Right. You know, your your group started in the wake of the George Floyd murder and is still going strong Mm -hmm. it's got great branding you know as as a marketing person i recognize that it's like you said you're still doing active things and i wonder how you look at it in terms of its longevity you know is is this an organization that you think has a multi-year you know kind of lifespan as opposed to something that starts out hot and, and kind of fizzles, you know, over a few months. Right. Like, happens a lot. It does. It does happen a lot. And it's not going to happen with us. It's just not. We we have a group of people that keep each other accountable at all times. And, I mean, we, you know, we, we are in constant contact all the time. Everybody that's involved with this group daily, we talk. And about what we can do, you know, um, where we can help uh, who's this organization we can partner with to help them be lifted. And we are all, it's just a group of people that are passionate and I, this problem isn't going to go anywhere soon. Sadly. I mean, I wish, I wish I could say it was, but you know, we've made progress, but not, not, we're not anywhere close to where we need to be. And if it's taken us this long to get where we are today, it's probably going to take us even longer to get where we, to get where exactly where we need to be. 
And so with that problem not going away, we're not going away. We're going to be here. We're going to be the voice. We're going to do anything we can to help to just to simply educate people to have those difficult conversations and just to be there. So you've, you've gone from, you know, being a mom and working in a detention center, um, to now doing those things still and, and also kind of managing this new organization and leading this, this organization. Do you see, does this feel like a kind of a natural progression for you? Or are you like looking back at the last three months and thinking, holy cow, what have I, what have <laughs> I gotten myself into? You do, you, know, I mean, do you feel like you've got the tools and, and this, this is a good fit for you? Absolutely. Or does it still feel like a, an accident? No, it feels like it's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay. And I've never had that feeling before. I mean, in my job, of course, I love my job. I love working with kids. But this is, it's different. It's just like, like I said, I finally feel like I'm doing something that I'm supposed to be doing. And I just, I have a group of great girls. Like you said, the marketing, we have our, our graphic designer. She's amazing. We, she's actually one of the prominent people that started helping. Um, she's, she was my childhood best friend and we hadn't talked in years and we ended up getting in contact um, about help about doing this. And she ended up being a graphic designer, which I didn't even know. Hmm. And so she was able to help us a lot, but you know, it's just, it's just such a group, good group of girls that it's like, we all bring something different to the table. You know, we have teachers, we have NAACP leaders, we have community activists, we have a photographer, graphic design teachers, just all over the board. We have different people that come from different backgrounds and have different um, they can just offer, all of us can offer something different. And together, it's just just a team, an amazing team. And it's like, why haven't we been doing this all along? And that's how it feels. Yes, I'm busy. I'm tired all the time. I'm busy. But it's never like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have right. done this. It's like, heck, yes, this is how, this is what I should have been doing. You know, I've been, I've been filling my time with nonsense that wasn't, didn't have any particular purpose. And now it's, it, my time is filled all the time, but it's all things you walk away with, and it's a good feeling. It's a good sense of, we did that. We did this, you know? So you were more educated than most people um, about the Black Lives Matter movement prior to George Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, but having immersed yourself even more, you know, in the, in the months since, I wonder if there's anything that like you feel personally you have learned that, that you understand now better than you did maybe a year ago, you know, conversations you've had, uh, events that you've been a part of. The main thing that I've learned is pretty much exactly what I'm doing. Just being there, how important, like you can talk about it all day. You can say that it's wrong and speak out against it, but what are you doing? And I think that's what, that's what the community wants to see. You know, she's not talking about it. She's actually doing it. Whoa, that's different. And I've gotten that a lot. Like, you know, people speak about it all day, but no one's actually doing anything specific. And I think that's important. And I'm, I'm not some important person, you know, I was, I'm just a normal person who was like, you know what, I'm done. I have to do something. I have to channel this anger and just, just actually taking that first step to doing something. And that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing I've learned with um, doing this and talking to people that are involved in this black, black lives matter movement is to just, start somewhere. Okay. Wherever you start, just start somewhere. And ask any organizations, how can we help? That's what we're doing. We don't have all the answers. We're just we're just trying to be there. Hey, how can we help you do this? Hey, can we help you promote this event? Hey, can we partner with you for this event? And just getting involved with different organizations that have the same mindset. Talk to me about the idea of solidarity. Knowing that you are a white woman, your your efforts are on behalf of the black community. Mm -hmm. Why is that kind of solidarity so essential to the movement? Well, being able to, I mean, I think everybody knows you're stronger when you're together. You know, that, and that's the idea, is being able to look at ourselves and say, you know, 
we do have some type of bias. Just being able to identify those biases that we don't have or that we don't know that we have, because that's happened a whole lot with this with this movement. A lot of people are starting to wake up and say, oh, I've been saying there isn't a problem and there is a problem. And if that's if just being able to identify those things can bring us into solidarity, just being able to say, hey, you know what? I haven't been right. Mm-hmm. Normalize changing your mind. Once you're well-educated on the topic, oh, okay, I was wrong. I didn't see it that way. And c- because that is the main issue. People are just, they they don't think outside of themselves. And when you when you don't do that, it's hard to relate. And so being able to identify those things and see where you're wrong is wh- when solidarity can happen. There's a... There's a humility involved there because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us, our instinct is to say, oh, I'm, I'm not racist, you exactly. know, and, and defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because, White fragility. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we have a black friend or, mm-hmm. you know, we think about things beyond just, you know, what we're going through in our lives. But there's an important kind of, of humility in accepting that, yeah, I do have these biases. Mm-hmm. And that are not accurate, that are not helpful, that are actually hurtful. Uh, and until you're willing to accept that about yourself, you're not ever going to change those things. Exactly. That's a big thing. You know, um, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, she does, um, she wrote a book about white fragility. You know, she talks a lot about how um, when you talk to white people about racism, it is an immediate, oh, not me. Mm-hmm. I'm not racist. And, I I think it's safe to say that everybody has some type of bias that can be racist. And that's, like you said, it takes a whole lot of humility to look at yourself and be be like, you know what, I do have this, this racist part about me. But being able to step back and be like, okay, but I can change that. Mm -hmm. And even... It's ongoing, you know, and I challenge people on that often. You know, I have people in my family that constantly ask me questions, that send me things that are very, I look at at them as they're kind of racist, you know, but you, but so I challenge them on it and immediately they're like, dang, okay, well, I didn't think about it that way. Just putting things into a different perspective, which I'm happy to do. I don't mind helping helping people see this, which is what we're trying to do. You know, we post a whole lot about it on Solidarity Isn't Silent, the Facebook group. We're just trying to help people see those and challenge them on those certain things. Because, I mean, you're, you said it best, it, it takes a whole lot of humility. And it's it's challenging everything that people know you know, that they've known for the past 60 years or how they've lived, how they've seen things growing up. You know, I have a lot of people come to me and talk to me about how things have gotten so much better. You know, they lived back when segregation was right. was okay. So we've gotten a whole lot better, right? You know, and it's, well, we've made some progress, but we're not nearly where we need to be. And so, and I think that's kind of the purpose. It's been kind of put, instead of it being very blatant, like on top of the rug, it's kind of under the rug. It, it hasn't changed. It's just differently positioned. And that's what I try to tell people. And so it's just it's just doing your research and learning. And a lot of people don't want to, you know, don't want to research something that doesn't directly affect them. They're, it's not their, their interest. And yes, it sounds very selfish, but it's just the truth. Well, and, and given that defensiveness, you know, putting yourself in a position of education mm-hmm. and challenging mindsets and, and making people think outside themselves can sometimes be adversarial. It mm-hmm. can put you in a position where you're telling people things they don't want to hear. Right. You're mm-hmm. making them face stuff that they're not comfortable facing. Yes. And I wonder, like, just from a personal standpoint, how you feel about that. Like, do you feel, does that make you uncomfortable? Are you having to to yourself get outside a place where you're comfortable in order to challenge people? Or does that feel like something that maybe you're, you're naturally good at? Cause a lot of people are not comfortable right. in that position, I, whether it's right or not, right. you know? <laughs> oh, I know. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, I don't have a problem being direct and helping people. It doesn't, it doesn't, it gets frustrating, but then I have to remind myself, 
I was that person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it helps me so much having been on that side because it's like, I know everything you're going to ask. You've I got know that it. personal testimony yes, exactly. aspect of it. That- I know exactly what you're going to ask. I know exactly what you're going to throw at me. I, I just, the responses are literally textbook. And so it's almost, it's just easy. You know, I've gotten to the point where like, okay, I, I go, go into a conversation and I almost know what you're going to say. But at the same time, when somebody brings up something that I haven't thought about from another perspective, being willing to be like, oh, you know what? I've never thought about that. That's a good, that's something good to look, that I can mm-hmm. look into. And just being able to humble myself if they make a good point, you know, like, hey, that was a good point. That is something that needs to be thought about. And let me educate myself on that. Um, because I, I, like I said, I'm learning, I still don't know all the answers, but when you're able to say that to them, they're more likely to listen to you and accept what you have to say. If you're willing to listen to them and accept what they have to say. I I wondered if you could talk a little bit about maybe the perspective of the black community about your group and you know, what it's providing. I, I think a lot of, as, as I learn more about the issue, as, as I do the self, you know, introspection, you know, I, I find myself very hesitant because I, I don't want to come across as like a white savior. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to be like, oh, here, let me come in and fix things as right. a white male mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because that is not helpful. In fact, right. that's a lot of the problem. Um, and, and so there, there's, a, there's a delicate balancing act where you want to let the black community lead. You want to let their voices be the loudest voices. You want their experiences mm-hmm. to be the most prominent experiences and then come alongside them. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where the solidarity aspect comes. Um, and I, I wonder like, how you have you know, kind of walked that tightrope to make sure that your group is being helpful uh, and that it's it's received in the way that you want it to be received, and not oh here's some white lady you know coming right. to help us out. Well, I haven't had any negative feedback because I do ask. You know, I have a lot of friends in the black community. I have a lot of people that I love and respect in the black community, and um, I, so far I haven't had any negative feedback said personally to me. You know, I've had a lot of good feedback. And uh, I think it's because we just make our position so clear. Like, we're not here to be a white savior. We're not here to be the loudest voice in the room. Be at the front of the march. Right, exactly. We're here to help in whatever way you need us to help. We are here. We are wanting to be your vessels. We are willing to speak up. We are willing to use our privilege in any way we need. We need to, to help. And that's all we are. I don't want to be on the front page. I want to be behind y'all, supporting y'all, you know? And that's, and I think that being known about us, because I feel like we are known for that. We're not, we're not perceived as people that want to be on the, you know, want to be front and center of everything. We have been a, a vessel and that's, that's literally all, all we're trying to do is to, to help. And with us, have shown we've shown that and what we've done and I think that's why we are so well received and we have a variety of people with us you know it's not just white people with us we have the black community with us in our organization okay um we have hispanics in our issues we have a great variety of people and we're just they know that our hearts are in the right place I feel like and if anybody doesn't feel that way I would welcome them to to talk to us about it. We are very open. What can we do to help? How can we do things differently? We're learning too. So if anybody could help us, I mean, we're, we're, we're very open people. Just all a conversation is all that's needed. But so far that hasn't really been, been an issue because I feel like we have very well presented ourselves as just wanting to help in any way that we can. I want to look a a few years into the future, if you don't mind, you know, five years from now, do you see this still being a thing that um, that you're heavily involved with. Yes. I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. I don't I don't really see an end in sight, honestly. If you're asking me, I don't see it. Well, we're not going to fix racism, you know, in exactly. the next five years. So. It's challenging people is going to be something that's going to have to happen for years to come, I'm afraid. <laughs> are, you, are you optimistic thinking about Amarillo in particular? You know, maybe not the broader movement across the United States, but about what progress you've seen this summer, if any? And, and maybe the direction that we're going. How do you feel about the city? I do feel like we're, we have the ability to do better. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that aren't on the same page, but the amount of people that are, are strong. 
You know, the people that are speaking up and that are trying to do things and get involved are very strong. And um, so I think if we just come at it at an angle of respect and um, love and being willing to have these conversations and not bashing, you know, I think when people disagree, some people get disrespectful and hateful. And mm-hmm. I, I like to think that we just don't do that. Um, we keep any of that off of our page, out of conversations, even on my personal page. If somebody disagrees with me, I very much just show them respect. I can I can disagree and not get hateful. And that is a, ma- a big thing for me. And I think that that's how it should be. Everywhere, when you're having conversa- difficult, difficult conversations with anybody, it's just not getting hateful. And that's what it's going to take because people aren't going to listen to you if, you're, if you resort to hate yeah. when you disagree. As long as you can show that, that, that compassion for what, for what you truly believe in and not resorting to hate to get your point across is the main key. And I think we do, a, a, the people in my group and the con- also the the. Um, organizations that are very involved in this movement, they have the same mentality. They don't resort to hate. They stay what they say what they believe, but they don't get hateful. And that is that's so important. And for if if everybody can keep doing that, I think we can reach so many more people than resorting to hate, resorting to those type of things. This episode is brought to you by SKP Creative. SKP is a full-service marketing agency, and I asked them what they wanted to communicate this time around. Well, they want to call attention for this episode to Shy Lee's Barbecue and Soul Food Cafe, located at 1213 Southwest 3rd. Shy Lee's is a family-owned local business. You may have heard owner Tremaine Brown on this podcast back in April 27th, one of our COVID Chronicles episodes. Back then, he had already given out 30,000 free meals to hungry kids during the shutdown. But he didn't stop. Like, he kept doing it all summer and recently announced that he had hit the 70,000 free lunch mark. Tremaine is doing amazing work in our community. The best way to support that work is to support Shiley's. It's really, really good. In fact, you'll hear Kara and me talk about it a little bit more in just a few minutes. So thanks again to SKP Creative at skpcreative.com. And I'm really grateful for SKP's ongoing sponsorship of the show. They've been a sponsor for more than a year. While we're on the subject, this podcast has a few advertising slots open for the fall. More people are listening to Hey Amarillo than ever before. It, it has carved out a really dedicated following, and I'm so grateful about that. If you want to get your business in front of Amarillo people, get in touch with me. I'll be happy to share with you more about my listener numbers, my listener demographics, uh, and more about the show. You can also support the show as an individual, if you want, by visiting patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Okay, I'm back with Kara Gilbert of Solidarity Isn't Silent. Kara, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in as much detail as you want to. Um, The first one is one that I've been asking guests uh, over the last three months. It's what's one thing the last few months whether it's related to the pandemic or to the protests, what's, what's one, one thing that this period has revealed to you about Amarillo? Um, I kind of talked about it earlier, but one thing that has become very clear to me is that people are unaware of things that um, don't directly affect them. Okay. Um, you know, we, we tend to not pay too much attention to things that don't directly affect us. And that's kind of the main thing that I've learned about the protests. You know, the, the pandemic is another story, but with Solidarity Isn't Silent, I'm going to go kind of towards the protesting part of it. I thought you might. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's one thing that I have really learned throughout this um, is because, I mean, you look on the comments of like the news stations and when they talked about the protests, even though it was 100% peaceful, Um, Amarillo did a great job in the protests. I mean, it was amazing to be there, but people were still like, well, why are they, why are they doing this here? This has nothing to do with Amarillo. This didn't happen here. This has never happened here, you know? And it it was, they didn't realize that it was something so much bigger than Mm -hmm. just that, that incident, the George Floyd incident, that, um, it was so much bigger than that, which is why people protested in every, every state and in, even in different countries, um, it was a worldwide protest. Yeah. And so 
I think that that definitely revealed that that was revealed to me during this time period is it's kind of just an out of sight out of mind exactly thing, that if you if you don't have close friendships with people of color if you don't have you know those conversations on a regular basis where you understand this is their perspective and this is what happens then yeah you're not going to know about it exactly. you're not going to see it and you're not going to realize what role even though it might be small what role your own beliefs are exactly. playing in it mm-hmm What's the most underrated aspect of living in Amarillo? I would say the sense of community. Okay. Because we, we, when, when there's things that need to be done, the community can come together. Yes, there's, you know, there's going to be divisiveness, as there is going to be everywhere. But we have, when things need to get done, people show up. Mm-hmm. You have people that are going to show up, and we have that sense of community when needed. Yeah, Amarillo is a place where we do stuff. Like, it is, you, there's sure. never a lack of action taken exactly. when it's time for that to to happen. And I've got to, I've learned that a lot here recently. As you know, when we've shown up to a whole lot of events, and people just, I mean, they just show up and they're just gung ho and ready to help. And it's been Amarillo shows up for sure. What does this area have too much of? Amarillo has a lot of closed mindedness. Okay, and that goes along with judgment there's 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 a lot of judgment and close close mindedness here but again it all ties back to just not being aware of what's going on and um for a community with more churches than there are gas stations <laughs> it, we kind of lack on the whole love thy neighbor situation and uh i just it's something that needs to be worked on here for sure especially with the amount of churches that we have yeah okay what does this area not have enough of? I'm going to kind of tie that into my last statement. And I think we need more churches being the churches. And um, and that's what we don't have enough of, is churches being the church. You know, um, here recently we do have the Uniting, Uniting is One event going on, and that's bringing 60 churches, I believe, being um, involved together, like meeting mm-hmm. together and getting together. Because you you would think as a Christian, as a believer, that you would you could talk to any other believer and kind of get a sense of understanding. But it seems like that hasn't been the case here. And so I'm really glad that the Uniting as One event is happening and um, that they're, they're making it their work to bring these churches together to get on the same page. And uh, I, I think that'll help because that's definitely an area that needs to be worked on here in Amarillo. There's there's a lot of geographic segregation in Amarillo. Yes. And then churches tend to be geographically oriented. You know, you, you go to church in your neighborhood for a mm-hmm. lot of people. Exactly. And as a result, our churches are still very segregated. Yes. And so, yeah, I, I think... I definitely see that. And you would think that a place as religious as Amarillo is, um, that 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 reaching outside of your own group, you know, to, to love your neighbor, right. uh, to show concern for people would be a natural outflow. But it's it's not always the case. It's not. And, you know, I, I have been doing a little church hopping here lately. You know, I have my main church that I go to, but uh, I've been kind of going to different churches, especially amidst what's going on right now. And just seeing what's talked about, what's not talked about mm-hmm. in different areas, it was kind of mind blowing to me. I feel, and maybe I'm biased, but I feel like this is definitely a time where things need to be talked about, especially in the church, especially in the church. And but they're doing a sermon series on like money, you exactly, know, or parenting, yes. and, and other churches are like, how are we going to survive this? Exactly, and just seeing the difference. Uh, you know, because I'll, I'll go to churches on the north side, I'll go to churches on the south side, and predominantly black church, predominantly white church, whatever the case may be, and just seeing the different concerns that they're having right now is just another factor of not knowing what's going on, Yeah, you know, and, and being very aware of what's going on. And I think that's just so important is for churches to realize um, is that just because it's not a problem in your church doesn't mean it's not a problem in your community. Yeah. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? 
I usually, everybody tends to think that we're like cowboys and cowgirls anywhere outside. And I, I always just tell me, I was like, we're not all like that. We're not all wearing cowboy hats and, or, you know, this is the area we're, we're right there by Paladera Canyon or where, where, where Pantex is or the, the yellow city. And that's kind of how I just describe Amarillo. It's very just Amarillo and Canyon right there together. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant? I'm gonna have to go with I'm going to say two because it's hard to pick one, <laughs> but Shiley's and Sunday's Kitchens. Okay. Th- those those are my two favorites. I've been going there a whole lot lately. It's been a problem. <laughs> I've I've never eaten at Sunday's Kitchen, but Tremaine at Shiley's has just been such a... Uh, blessing. Oh, such a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, for the city, for yes. the community, he's fed, what, 70, 75,000 kids yes. over the, the summer? He was actually one of the guys that was in my... Uh, living room the night okay. we started solidarity as inside i knew i wanted him there he's been one of my friends for a while and such a great leader he's though. amazing and yes. a guy that just doesn't just talk but goes out does and it. takes action yes exactly i agree plus he makes some really good bar- barbecue <laughs> yes he does <laughs> okay pack a sack or toot and totem i'm a toot and totem gal really? i worked there part-time for just a little bit did you really okay. yeah so i'm gonna have to back up my toot and totem people okay is that a i ask that question pretty often just because i think it's funny um it, is that a legitimate thing? Like, are there people who are toot and totem passionate people and only go to toot and totem, <laughs> and people who are actively, you know, like team team Pakistan? As somebody who worked there, like, are are you aware of that? Or you know, we had the same people. There are regulars, definitely for sure. But um, I think yes, there are. To me, I say to like if I had if I lived right next door to two, I'm gonna go to Toot and Totem. Okay. But I happen to live right across the street from a Pakistan a Pakistan, so it's super convenient. So I do go there often. But if you're gonna ask me which one I would choose if I had equal uh, equal access to both, I'm gonna go with Toot and Totem. Okay. <laughs> but yes, oh, it's a thing. It's a it thing. It is a thing. Okay. Um, okay. Last question. When was the last time you went to Paladura Canyon? Um, I, di- I didn't go this summer. I-, I was actually going to go this summer, but the- with uh, COVID and everything, there were certain like time blocks you could go. Yeah. And um, so I didn't end up get to go. But I went last. I went last summer, May of 2019, and we did the the zip line and did the um, the lighthouse trail, which is exhausting but awesome at the same time. But yeah, that's the last time we went. Okay. That concludes my eight straight questions, Kara. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Solidarity Isn't Silent has teamed up with Shy Lee's and Tremaine okay. and the Black Historical Culture Center with Melody Graves and Jay Parker. We have teamed up with them for a school supply drive. Um, and that is happening on Saturday, August 29th All right. at 11 o'clock is when it starts. Um, it's going to be such an awesome event. Um, we will have a voter registration booth as well as a um, food giveaway, like a lunch stack for the kids, and a school supply set as well. Last year, Tremaine did this by himself, and he gave away over 500 sets of school supplies, you know, full with the backpack and everything else. So we're hoping that this year with all three of us teaming up together, it will be an even better, better event. And also being able to get people to vote and giving, you know, giving them food. Tremaine's known for best, you know, you got to give them food. He always says people will come if you say food's there. (laughs) (laughs) So he, uh, he, he's going to be doing that, be doing the food for that. And then we're just, we're gathering school supplies we can we either we take monetary donations and we also we also are taking school supplies as well. Okay. Um, there's a drop off box at Shiley's as well as the Black Historical Culture Center, and then we have monetary do- no, donations set up through our Solidarity Isn't Silent dot com webpage. Okay. Um, so that's an event that's going to be awesome. Uh, Eleven to two. Talk to me briefly about the voting emphasis of it and and why that's an important part of the movement. Um, well, here in Amarillo, we do not have a lot of people's people voting. You know, we have a lot of people registered to vote, but uh, it's getting people to the polls that's going to be the big thing. And so that's kind of, you know, we have different groups within our group working on specific things. And we have a, a group of girls that are focusing on voting and getting people to the get, getting people to the polls. I think it's just very important to 
get people registered to vote and uh, while at the same time explaining to them how important it is not to just do this but to get to the polls the day of elections okay you know this year is it's it's an important year for for the movement in itself um for the black lives matter movement um getting to the polls is going to be dire this year and texas is known as a state that's a non-voting state right a place where people just don't vote Mm -hmm. and that's what. That's why we're trying to get word out. Um, nine of us on the Solidarity Isn't Silent team have become um, VDRs. Okay. So we're able to get anybody registered to vote. Um, we are. We got it for both Randall and Potter County. So we're making that kind of a goal for us is so we could all get people registered to vote. We're going to try to show up in different at different events to get people to vote and to also just talk to them about how important it is. Um, especially this year. Okay. Carrie yeah. Gilbert, thank you so much yes, for being sir. on the thank podcast. Thank you for having me. And that concludes the episode. Thanks to Kara for the interview. You can learn more about her organization at solidarityisntsilent.com. And if you want to help with the school supply drive, drop off donations at Shiley's at 1213 Southwest 3rd. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing the show and to Blue Handle Publishing and SKP Creative for sponsoring Hey Amarillo. Supporters of this podcast through Patreon include executive producers Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Wes Reeves, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Jess Heredia, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, and Joshua Rafe. This has been episode 158. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.